0: Your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected.
1: Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com.
0: WJFF Jeffersonville. This is Radio Catskill.
2: Good evening. Welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hopes that our listeners will better understand our veterans, that our veterans will come to know that they're not alone, and perhaps along the way, we'll learn something about each other. We sincerely hope to achieve that mission. The opinions expressed here are mine alone as a veteran. Tonight. The folks from Guardian Revival will explain how this organization is providing first responders and veterans with essential training, equipment, and life-saving strategies. Then we'll learn how Stop Soldier Suicide is using digital forensic footprints to combat veteran suicide. first, here are some dates to remember this month. September is, of course, National Suicide Prevention Month and National Service Dog Month. Labor Day was the first Monday of September and VJ Day, Victory Over Japan, World War II, September 2nd. Patriot Day, September the 11th. Constitution Week, September 17th through the 23rd. Hispanic Heritage Month, September 15th through October 15th. U.S. Air Force Birthday is September 18th, as is the birthday of the Air National Guard. National POW MIA Recognition Day is the third Friday in September. Gold Star Mother's Day is the last Sunday in September. And the Warrior Games, September 21st through the 28th. And finally, VFW Day, September the 29th. This Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on our country. 19 militants associated with the Islamic extremist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airliners and carried out suicide attacks against targets in the U.S. Almost 3,000 people died. These attacks triggered major U.S. initiatives to combat terrorism in Iraq and Afghanistan. On August 30th, The last U.S. troops left Afghanistan. Since the original deployment, November 2001, 7,057 U.S. service members have died. 30,177 U.S. service members and veterans have taken their own lives. As with Vietnam, the hangover will be long and painful. The chronic disease, this time created by the inhalation of airborne particulates, generated by the ever-present burn pits, the new Agent Orange, coupled with the physical and moral injuries sustained by our service members, will add to the true cost of this war for many years to come. As with Vietnam, the mission to kill bin Laden morphed into something else and extended our involvement by almost ten years. As with Vietnam, there was apparently no clear exit strategy. Despite the chaos of a poorly planned, poorly directed withdrawal, U.S. service men and women successfully airlifted 122,300 souls to safe havens around the world. Many of these refugees and those who worked with and for the U.S. will ultimately come here. It must also be noted that many NGOs managed to rescue those who were in danger because of their aid to the U.S. because our government could not Or would not? And the beat goes on. On August 27th, 13 additional young U.S. service members lost their lives to the very thing which started this 20-year deployment, a terrorist attack. When an aircraft crashes, the flight recorder often provides forensic information about the cause. We humans are not equipped with these devices yet. However, there's some interesting work being done along these lines, and Chuck Eastman of Stop Soldier Suicide explains this new approach.
3: Welcome to Let's Talk Vets, Chuck. Well, first off, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, really an honor to be in your program. Uh,
2: You've had an interesting military career. And now you lead Stop Soldier Suicide Organization's community engagement and outreach efforts. So we're going to talk more about that, but uh, let's start with your service, if you would.
3: Uh, So I retired in uh, 2017 after 20 years in the Army. I initially enlisted and ended up in the Ranger Regiment. When 9-11 happened, I conducted the initial parachute assault into Afghanistan. And then once we redeployed, quote-unquote, the war was won. You know, there was elements in Toraboro. we thought we got bin Laden, and we thought that most of the fighting was behind us. So when a job op- opened up at JSOC, or Joint Special Operations Command, to be the driver and do personal security overseas, I jumped at it, because it sounded like uh, it'd be fun. Well, obviously, 2002 was not the end of the global war on terror. So after my time at JSOC, I applied to flight school, where I flew the AH-64 Delta Apache, I did a 15-month tour in Iraq, flying the Apache, was part of the Battle of Sadr City. And then upon my return, I assessed and uh, was selected to fly A-6 Little Birds, 160th SOAR. I was an instructor pilot, I was fully mission qualified, and a battalion safety officer. And at the end of the day, I retired with 17 combat deployments, and I was ready to get out and watch my son grow.
2: What was your rank when you got out, Chuck? I was a CW-3. Warrant officer, right? Correct. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Sounds like there's a book there somewhere, too. <laughs>
3: <laughs> My wife already wrote one. Okay. For her.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Stop Soldier Suicide, and, and according to your website, it's, it's not just another veteran service organization. So, walk us through the traditional approach by most service organizations and, and talk a little bit about what's different about the organization that you work for.
3: Sure. So by saying we're not just another veteran service organization, we're in no way belittling what other VSOs do to support veterans. But many of them lack concrete examples or data showing that what they're doing is contributing to suicide prevention or saving lives. So many other VSOs wait for the veteran to come to them for help. They do get-togethers, they do events, but sometimes the veterans most in need aren't going. So we go knocking on their doors with digital advertising and marketing that are normally found in you know, a for-profit organization. So from intake to completion of our services, we track the data through an evidence-based wraparound case management model that has proven quantitative data. As an example, just in the first 90 days that a veteran be a client of ours, we have data that reflects on average a 27% reduction in suicide risk and a 72% increase in personal wellness index. And those are just two of the metrics that we keep track of.
2: So... How is Stop Soldier Suicide uh, different?
3: So, from all that we know, no other organization is approaching veteran suicide prevention the way Stop Soldier Suicide is. Our service delivery model was custom built three years ago, it was derived from our scientific advisory committee's guidance, and we spent the first couple of years doing a proof of concept, which brings us to where we are today. Combine our service delivery model with our cutting edge data that we're utilizing for our black box project. And with all humility, there really are no other organizations out there like Stop Soldier Suicide. Depending on how the veteran reaches out to Stop Soldier Suicide, uh, the veteran will speak with the wellness coordinator within 24 business hours. So during that initial call, the wellness coordinator will assign a risk level for their suicide risk. If it's a low risk, we revert back to the re- resource and referral model we were built upon 11 years ago uh, and provide them resources that may help them get back on track. However, if it's deemed that they're a medium-risk client or a high-risk client, the wellness coordinator will discuss with the client a crisis response plan to address lethal means access. In subsequent calls, depending on the risk, you know, that may be one or two times a week. Uh, the wellness coordinator will work with the client to manage their suicide risk and address what factors put them at that increase, increased risk. So at the end of the risk management cycle, we have a team of certified life coaches that are ready to help the client get back on their feet. For medium and high-risk clients, the expectation is that they'll remain a client for up to two years, longer if necessary. And at all times, we're 100% confidential, 100% free, and we'll serve any and all veterans, regardless of discharge status, period served, or even combat experience.
2: You have a, a number of elements that make up what you call your true north, beginning with your culture.
3: Right. Our CEO last year made a very deliberate effort to put together the team that everybody wants to work with. So culture was one of those big ticket items. Like if you look at Netflix as an example, they have a unique, you know, they're well-known for their culture. So we've developed our own culture. So like magnetic North, you know, that kind of shifts over time, but true North, it points to the North pole and it'll never, it'll never change. So we established our true North and it's a program of standard setting characteristics to which we hold ourselves and our teammates accountable. Next is service. So we refined a holistic data-driven model that is equally accessible to all veterans and service members with a 24-7 coverage through multiple channels. Next is clients. So we have accelerated laser focus acquisition tactics. Like I was saying, it's more of a for-profit model to serve 20% more clients in 2019. And we reached all 50 states and Washington, D.C. Under impact, uh, we've, affected an average decrease of 27% in client suicide risk and a 72% increase in the client's personal wellness index within the first 90 days. How do you quantify that? I'm glad you asked that. So we pretty much drive all of our decisions based off of data, and we collect data at multiple points throughout a client's journey from initial suicide risks. So we use a program called CAMS, which is a collaborative assessment and management of suicidality. It was uh, developed by Dr. Jobes, who's on our scientific advisory committee, and it goes through a series of questions. And at the end of the questions, you know, based off of the, the client's answer, the client will rate their own self-assessed scores whether it be for hopelessness, agitation, and the wellness coordinator will come up with a score at the same time as two. And then the personal wellness index is a, a standardized test that, you know, will we'll ask them, you know, it's a series of questions to determine how well they're doing.
2: All right, and then we have investment.
3: Correct. So we've increased our program spend for nearly 30% year over year. We've invested more than $2 million into the, the fight to save veteran and service members' lives. And we've laid that groundwork for 2021 and beyond. And the way forward you know, has become more clear. We've never taken our eyes off of exactly what we're fighting to accomplish, which our mission is a 40% reduction in military suicide rate, which equates to 2,400 lives saved per year and a $221 billion public cost for suicide avoided.
2: Now we get into something that really was intriguing when I heard you speak before the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force. Aircraft have what's called a black box to record flight data so that in the event of a mishap, that data can be analyzed, used to determine the cause, and perhaps lessons learned will help uh, prevent other events Now, your organization applies the same approach to troubled vets, but they don't have onboard data recorders. So explain to us what that application of
3: that theory is and how you use it. You're you're absolutely correct. People do not have a black box of onboard sensors, but they do have something that oftentimes will gather very similar data to what a black box an airplane will, and that's their cell phone. Along with their cell phone, they have social media, web searches, online profiles, etc, which all provide a trove of data for us to explore. So everyone has a known outward facing social media persona, whether it be on email, address, phone numbers, usernames, and people also sometimes have an unknown social media, which is an inward facing persona, you know whether that be unknown social media accounts, blog presence, or you know some some of their gaming activity and then lastly, people have a true persona which resides in their devices, and we acquire all that data using standard open-source intelligence gathering techniques to scrape their devices of all the data, upload that data into a data lake, and leverage our partnership with Amazon for the machine learning and AI capabilities. Additionally, we use sentiment analysis for their texts, messages, emails, and any other outbound communication to determine where and when they were having a good day or a bad day, because their phones track their location and what they're what they're sending in the text message, we can apply that to a sentiment analysis and determine if they're having a good or a bad day. So much like a black box captures the final events leading to an aircraft accident, our hope is to recreate the final seconds, minutes, weeks, months, and year of their life. And much like how the aircraft black box changed aviation safety in the 1950s, our hope so that we get a better picture of what may lead up to a suicide, hopefully identify trends and patterns, and apply that knowledge to a broader suicide prevention model at a national level.
2: Now, in order to do this, of course, um, the reality is that the, the veteran has succeeded in his quest to end his life or her life. And you now go about trying to acquire the uh, black box, so to speak, the cell phone, the tablet, the uh, laptop. You have to go to the family. How do you do that? That's got to be really, really tough.
3: It It is really, really tough. Uh, it was something that I knew in the periphery would be tough, but you don't realize it until you do it. That it is really tough. Uh, talking with the families about this opportunity, is uh, it's a delicate balance of compassionate listening and assessing their readiness to move forward with us. You know, it starts with the building of relationship, you know, and that, that's meeting them where they are. You have to really listen to the language they're using and try to match that. You go into these conversations knowing that these families desperately miss their person our job is to keep that person's legacy alive. We ask the question about their loved ones. How did the person live? We love to hear the stories. And once we begin to build trust through learning their stories and even sharing some of their own stories of loss and hope, we're able to better assess where the family may be in the arc of resilience. So we often find that helping others actually helps us heal our own hearts. When we believe a family is in a helping headspace of their journey, we gently invite them to join the Black Box Initiative. From there, we stand by with answers to their questions and fully open hearts. And we continue to remind them that there is indeed purpose in their pain. And we're here to help them find that through storytelling and resourcing to other compassionate partnerships we've made.
2: How do you determine that uh, on a daily basis, Monday morning, come in and say, So who do we need to contact this week?
3: Right. So we we have, you know, in, in sales terminology there's a pipeline and we identify based off a series of factors so ideally the death would have been within the past 2 years because that means the data is most uh, is freshest you know ideally they need a device so at least a cell phone but it's even better if there's a cell phone a tablet a laptop and then that's really the the main criteria for the devices themselves we'll kind of rack and stack based really based off of date and then you know level of interest you know there's some families that say no thank you right up front, and there's there's some families that realize this is an opportunity to prevent other families from having to answer that question of why. So it, it really varies from family to family.
2: All right. We're dealing mainly so far with folks that have succeeded in their goal of ending their life for a whole myriad of reasons and very complex reasons. But I've talked to a number of folks, and a few of them were – Uh, veterans that had suicidal ideation, but uh, for whatever reason or circumstance, they did not succeed. Would it be Mm -hmm. of any value to do the same type of data mining of their devices?
3: Sure. So, I mean, any and all data is helpful, but to, to have the most refined data, it's best coming from the families of the veteran that did succeed. Now, we do utilize veterans that have attempted before, and that's developed from the keyword analytics to figure out what their pain points were, and then what can we do to help alleviate that pain? So we definitely do interact with attempt survivors for getting a better picture on who we're trying to capture and how can we best serve them.
2: Okay. Since uh, you started 11 years ago, have you been able to determine how uh, effective that Stop Soldier Suicide as an organization has been?
3: So the impact is really easy to assess by interviewing prior and existing clients. You know, we've had multiple clients say, quote, I wouldn't be here alive without Stop Soldier Suicide. And that's not uncommon to hear from them. And being the data-driven organization that we are, we also use the data to quantify our progress and successes over time. Like within the past year, we hired a data scientist who took existing data of known risk factors for suicide apply those same risk factors to our existing clients and a subset of prior clients. And by an algorithm she developed, we can quantifiably say that we have saved 205 lives in 2020 and are on track to save 300 in 2021.
2: Okay, and these algorithms and metrics are used by your own staff, correct?
3: Correct. They're used by our staff. They are all evidence-based data points. You know, so like if if there's a issue of substance use, that is an x percentage higher risk of, uh, of suicide, or if there's sexual abuse, there is an ex- increase at risk of suicide. So, yes.
2: Okay. Now, in order to save more vets, program is going to have to be larger, and I would imagine that you would want this concept to be adopted by the mental health community at large, possibly the VA. Is that on the horizon?
3: Absolutely. So I've reached out to several different VAs, and as every veteran knows, every VA is different than the other. Some have been very supportive, like the VA in New York City. Others think they have the problem figured out, but I I point to the numbers and say, well, there's still a problem in the veteran space for suicide. But we've received an immense amount of support from the mental health community because nobody else is using our model. Our proven efficacy and focus on data has set us apart and able to prove that what we're doing works, we're currently working with a couple healthcare systems to pile a referral framework and are very hopeful that we continue to expand our services. And to your point, we are looking to continue to expand nationally.
2: Outside of the framework of mental health, will this ever be to the point where, say, a veteran service office professional is talking to a vet and can recognize signposts that could be used by other than mental health people to alert them to a problem to get somebody the help that they need, even though they're not clinicians?
3: I, I really hope so. I mean, stigma is was one of the main problems. This is my own personal opinion. Uh, but the stigma surrounding suicide, just the word suicide, is one of the bigger problems that we face. Uh, if, if we could just reach more people and say, it's okay to not be okay and go get the help that you need. I mean, if you had cancer, you would go to a doctor and you'd get treated for cancer. So it's, it's no different for the mental health challenges. You know, some are unique that veterans have. But being able to communicate with them that there is help out there, and, you know, if there's any concerns for us, it's free. There's no reporting to chain of command. There's no reporting to security clearances. It's just I, I really hope to get to that point someday. And I think it's happening slowly. I think there's some key voices on, you know, social media that are saying, you know, it's I raised my hand and I went and got help, and that's Okay. And that's ultimately my goal of where I want it to be at some point. It would be great if you
2: could get uh, before Congress and uh, talk about this concept.
3: It it would be very uh, helpful. Uh, And there there are some initiatives we're working on right now. I can't get into a ton of details, but our CEO is speaking with uh, key individuals about, you know, an initiative. And some things we're learning, you know, the more clients we're interacting with and the deeper we're drilling down you know, we're learning some interesting facts about the the veterans that we work with. So hopefully you'll hear more about that in the future.
2: Okay. Before we wrap this up, do you have any closing thought you'd like to pass on?
3: I guess the most important thing is if I can pass along how people can learn more about Stop Soldier Suicide. One of our main social media platforms is Facebook. Uh, We do a lot of fundraising through Facebook. If your listeners are Facebook uh, users, if they could follow Stop Soldier Suicide, they can get all the the current information there for challenges uh, or they can visit www.stopsoldersuicide.org. And most importantly, if you know someone that could benefit from our help who could benefit from life-saving services, please have them check the get help link on our website, or they can call 844-235-2764. And this is 24 seven. And I promise that they'll be in good hands.
2: well, I thank you and your organization for the work that you're doing. It's absolutely essential, especially when I guess we're still losing at least a vet every hour of every day. Uh,
3: Yeah. A little bit less. It's around 18 to 20 a day. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's pretty darn close.
2: But some of those, I mean, admittedly, especially during COVID, I'm sure some of that was, wasn't reported correctly.
3: Yeah. That data is still to be released. You know, with the VA releasing their suicide data, you know, two years, I don't want to call it late, but it takes them two years to get the suicide data out there. But we do know from active duty that the Army has seen a 30% increase in active duty suicides and DOD overall has seen a 20% increase. It's not going to be a good news story in two years from the VA releases a report.
2: Well, Chuck Eastman, thank you very, very much on behalf of Our listeners at Radio Catskill, WJFF, and our program is Let's Talk Vets.
3: Thank you so much, Doug. It's been a real pleasure.
2: No, we really appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill WJFF. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Guardian Revival is a New York State 501c3 not-for-profit providing support to first responders, the armed forces, and our veteran communities. They raise money to fund training opportunities, equipment, and other resources for law enforcement military service members emergency medical services and other first responders. Donations also fund veterans programs which provide support and resources to both military and first responder veterans. Alex Othamer is a former Navy SEAL and co-founder and executive director of Guardian Revival. And Aaron Leonard is a career Army officer who now heads up their outdoor adventure program for veterans and first responders. Gentlemen, Welcome to Let's Talk Vets.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having us,
2: dude. So, Alex, we're going to start with you. Let's start by uh, reviewing your service for us, if you would.
1: Sure thing. So I graduated from Carmel High School and uh, went to the Merchant Marine Academy for four years, played football there, ran track, and then um, decided to commission into the Navy, and I went right to Bud's to be a SEAL. Was in a buzz class 304, uh, went straight through, thankfully, without an injury or uh, any setbacks, um, which is a rarity and I'm very grateful for. And then went uh, right into the teams, uh, served on SEAL Team 4 and then Special Boat Team 22 and just got out last
2: year in April. So how many years of service altogether?
1: A little under eight years. I had a little bit of time in the reserves and then um, I totally separated uh, this past year.
2: Okay and and since you've separated you've been busy you are the executive director of a, an organization called the Guardian Revival and uh, I'd like to like to start with a brief 10,000 foot view and then we're going to drill down a little bit
1: Awesome yeah so uh when I got when I got out um actually before I officially separated from the military I did a uh, internship program called the Skills Bridge and that gives service members an opportunity to uh play around and the corporate world uh, and the private sector a little bit before they're entirely separated. So um, October of 2019, I started that program. And uh, as soon as I stepped out, I uh, co-founded Guardian Revival with a close friend of mine, Chris Watkins, who I went to high school with. And we've been running ever since with it. So a little under two years. We have really two parts of our organization. The first half is our veterans programs, which service both first responder and military veterans and uh, those two programs being Boots and Paws, which is our working dog program, and then another Summit, which is an outdoor adventure and education program where we take veterans out on hikes, backpacking trips, and other outings. The other side of our organization consists of things called micro-missions, and they're just focused lines of effort where we raise money and provide training and equipment to first responders.
2: Okay, well, I'd really like to start with the micro-missions, but I have to ask you, so what was it in this transitional program that you that you took that um, pointed you in this direction?
1: Great question. And I'd say as soon as I touched ground back in the civilian world and started dialing back into politics a little bit and kind of getting a a clearer picture of what's going on on the ground outside of the, the military, I realized quickly that. Our veterans, number one, need more support when it comes to mental health, uh, especially the first responder communities. They're completely underserved. And then two, and related to our micro missions, you know, there seem to be this overwhelming movement of people in our country that aren't understanding the importance of first responders and their ability to perform and maintain safety and security in our communities. So in short, you know, I realize that we actually need to provide more training and equipment to these uh, individuals or what we like to call guardians, because if we want a more safe and secure future, you know, for generation and generation to come, we have to invest more into these people.
2: And I have to say that reading this kind of took me by surprise because some of the stuff we're going to talk about, I thought were would be a given in any first responder organization, the police, the firefighters, and what have you, but but they're not. And um, it's actually touching veterans on a couple of levels. Number one is a lot of veterans end up first responders, right? And uh, number two is that sometimes, unfortunately, veterans are the um, subject for the first response. So being able to better equip these organizations to immediately supply, I guess we'll call it advanced first aid to stabilize, provide some degree of triage before the EMTs arrive or the official first responders get there is is a great a great idea.
1: Yeah, no, and uh, you bring up a lot of good points and and the micro mission you're speaking about uh, specifically um, is uh, Apollo, which is as you said, providing trauma training. And equipment for law enforcement specifically, as you alluded to, the fact that they're often the first responders at the scene of an event um, before EMS gets there. So, yes, yep, uh, an important area that we felt like we needed to address almost immediately one of our
2: first micro missions. So, give us a hypothetical uh, that the Apollo mission would definitely make a difference.
1: We had a, a law enforcement officer who was. Cleaning out his basement, was cutting up a carpet, and actually uh, he ended up nicking his femoral artery in his leg, slicing through uh, all of his uh, skin and muscle, and was bleeding out. And he was a recent graduate of our uh, trauma training and was able to pack his wound effectively, put a, a makeshift tourniquet on it with uh, duct tape, and then uh, get himself to the hospital. And And the doctor credited his, his actions for saving his life. If he didn't provide that treatment, he would have let out being he was in a remote uh, area where he lived. So that's one example that that we're proud to say was recent. And other examples and hypotheticals hopefully don't happen, but we're fully expecting them to be, is if, you know, you or a family member are driving late at night in one of the windy roads that we have here in the Hudson Valley, and you crash your car. And uh, EMS doesn't patrol the streets. The fire department doesn't patrol the streets. So what we have left is law enforcement officers who are – patrolling, and they're going to be the first ones showing up to the scene. You have a compound fracture, some other sort of bleed. Uh, They're going to be able to stop that, prevent you from bleeding out, and then get you to the next echelon of care.
2: Okay, so what is the training that's involved, and what is the equipment that you supply to law enforcement and firefighters, uh, presumably, and how do they become aware of this? I mean, how are you touching base? How are you getting participation and buy-in from these agencies?
1: To answer the first question, uh, we partner with, uh, you know, for-profit organizations to actually provide the training and equipment. So Guardian does not do the training. We just partner with other organizations and get either pro bono or discounted services. So we uh, work with an organization called Medicine in Bad Places, uh, who's founded and operated by a a, a NYPD emergency service unit guy. His name's Sean Solar, And... um, he provides the training as close as you can get to real-world training with um, Hollywood dummies that bleed, breathe, go to the bathroom, um, and then, you know, there's some classroom uh, involved. It's a full eight-hour day, and then at the end of it, we give uh, the participants uh, a trauma medical kit or what we call the military blowout kit, which has your essential equipment to, to stop a bleed or to prevent, you know, further cascading of, of some traumatic injury that you're dealing with. As far as figuring out how we get these services out and provide these services to first responders, our website, so, uh, guardianrevival.org, social media is another way. And then we have uh, different liaisons. We call them law enforcement liaison, EMS liaisons, that are uh, rooted in these communities, particularly locally at the moment. And they are always pushing out training and advertising these different opportunities for the different departments to come along and, and, and
2: join. Okay. And moving on to the second program called Titan, and I never thought about this either, health and wellness training for first responders. So as first responders are subjected to what they're subjected to and in, in the performance of their duties, I mean, they're they're subject to the same type of psychological injuries as our veterans are in wartime or in a war theater. And also the the natural effects of aging and the weird hours and prolonged hours they work. So let's talk about those programs and and how those are helping people in these responder communities to stay alert and stay active and stay healthy.
1: So Titan was built upon the amount of physical and mental stress that our first responders deal with on a daily basis. You know, they like you said, they witness trauma just as much as our combat vets, if not more and they don't have separation from their personal lives. They're going out on the street. They could respond to a serious car accident, see someone that is torn up or, or dead or mutilated, and and then they have to go back to their family and be a father or mother. So what we see looking at mental health across different first responder communities is that, you know, they're not doing well. You know, a lot of, a lot of them are struggling with, number one, getting the help they need, and two, just coming out and opening up to their issues because a lot of times they – they experience some bit of shame or or there's some level of fear that they will be either shunted from the community or deemed uh, inoperable or or that they can't continue to do their job. So it's seen as weakness. So trying to pull them out and get them to open up is important. So that's like a a little bit on the mental health aspect and and providing them with uh, professionals, different programs like we have in Guardian, Boots and Paws, another summit. That's a important part of the mental health piece and building resiliency and so on and so forth. And then, you know, there's the whole aspect of diet and exercise and sleep and fatigue management and just understanding the fact that shift work is arguably one of the most destructive things that you could experience as an individual just Totally dislocating your circadian rhythm and not being able to get a rest restful night of sleep, um, just cascade cascades into a whole other wealth of issues. You know, you'll see a first responder get into a very uh, destructive cycle where they're not sleeping well, they're just eating, you know, for pleasure. They're not eating for fuel. They're eating the wrong things. They're coming home. It just turns into a a destructive cycle. So. Hoping to break that cycle, provide them with more knowledge on, on what you should be focusing on eating, how you should be focusing on sleeping when you do have the opportunities, how you should be exercising, getting out, moving, those types of things.
2: And the third leg on this stool, Zeus. And this was particularly intriguing to me. Again, never thought about it. But it's training and equipment to improve decision-making abilities and tactics Under stress. Now, this hits home when we think about some of the really, really bad situations in this country that we've seen where law enforcement did or apparently did the wrong thing under stress and with today's abilities to photograph everything, immediately go public. This particular program teaches people how to actually think better, and you're going to have to explain that to me because if I'm faced with a perpetrator who's raising a firearm at me and I presumably have a, not even a second or two seconds to decide which one of us is gonna go home that night. I mean, how, how do you improve on that and, and what's behind this program?
1: Yeah, Doug, so this is one of the programs that right now I have probably the most passion for and that we're building out the framework to really scale this type of training and, and resources. Uh, To first responders. So, yeah, this is, uh, you know, obviously a a big social chasm we're experiencing right now in the United States. Right. And you have half the country that gets it and understands and and maybe firsthand have experienced uh, stressful situations and know that, you know, at large, your your ability to make logical decisions is, is nearly frozen, and it's very difficult to make decisions under pressure. Um, even some of our best, most well-trained military units in the world um, experience difficulties with this and often kind of make the wrong decision under pressure. So the important part here is, one, raising awareness and trying to open the public up and, and show them that this isn't easy and that we don't recruit supermen and superwomen to be law enforcement officers. We do our best. But at the end of the day, they're humans, and they don't have uh, nearly as much training as they should have. Um, And this isn't necessarily their fault. And you can't generalize a couple instances and say that nearly a million law enforcement officers are doing the wrong thing, and they're bad people. That's ignorance. So what we want to do here, number one, is, again, try to show the public that this is not an easy job and we need more training and more resources to get these law enforcement officers making better decisions under pressure and then two, actually providing scalable resources and training um, to help them and what that looks like right now and what we're working on is getting professionals that all they do is use lethal and non-lethal means of use of force to come in and show better ways to make decisions on the streets a little bit of a, a psychological play where You know, you might be doing breathing exercises or some form of mindfulness before you um, step out of your vehicle to go to a traffic stop when, you know, you could be pulling over a gang member or, you know, an elderly woman. So we really want to make sure that they're having near real world repetitions at what they're doing. So that could look like getting them in virtual augmented reality simulator where they can make decisions and make calls under heightened levels of stress that we can induce through artificial ways. Another uh, way might be getting them on the range more and shooting their weapons more and using technology that has come out that gives them the ability to shoot or not shoot or uh, deploy their taser or not deploy their taser with some heightened levels of stress, you know,
2: before they actually step out onto the street in the real world. Probably more prominent in larger agencies like the state police versus the town I live in, the Port Jervis City Police. Correct. Varying on the department jurisdiction,
1: uh, you said it, resources and training opportunities and even just culture varies from department to department. You know, with that being said, what we want to do is augment budgets and help towns, municipalities state at the state level if possible to, to get them more training opportunities um, at no cost, right? So that's the whole idea.
2: So is uh, Guardian Revival primarily involved with New York state agencies at this point? Uh, good question. As of now, we are really centered in the New York metropolitan
1: area, primarily in Putnam, Westchester and Duchess, although we have touched departments in Connecticut and Pennsylvania and Jersey and a couple of federal agencies as well. So we do want to grow this into a national organization that we want them to see that we're not here to argue. the left or the right. We try to steer clear a lot of the whole political arguments. Um, We just try our best to stay logical and use facts, understand key points that professionals in the fields uh, talk about, and understand that nobody worthy is going to argue that we don't need law enforcement, we don't need EMS, we don't need firefighters. Um, So you know, with that being said, I think we can draw the logical correlation that um, the more training and the more Equipment they have the, the more safe and secure our communities are going to be.
2: Let's talk about
1: uh, boots and paws. So Boots and Paws is one of our two veterans programs. Uh, what we do is focus on, again, first responder and military veterans. We award a working dog with a full care package, which comes with a year's worth of food, veterinary services, uh, toys, leashes, equipment, uh, and seven training sessions from a professional. Veterans that you know are need, in need of some bit of animal ownership for therapeutic purposes can, can come to us, apply, and you know, hopefully be awarded an animal. There's a tremendous amount of... Research and a growing body of evidence showing that animal ownership has a a very positive effect on an impact on mental health. Anything from depression, anxiety, PTSD, all those different issues that we see prominent in our veteran communities, animal ownership has an opportunity to maybe address that. Our organization is new in the game in a lot of these things. And, you know, to date, we've awarded four dogs to veterans and you know we are immediately learning that operating in the veteran population is it 's not easy a lot of these vets uh, have a difficult time coming out and opening up filling out application process that you know might ask them to disclose, disclose information that you know they don't they don 't want to disclose so understanding the population that we 're working in is definitely an area that is a learning experience for us and
2: modifying our application process not being a, a turn off to the veteran well, Alex, this has been fascinating and for the next segment i'm going to turn to aaron and talk to him about another summit which is a another great program so i want to thank you so much for your time on let's talk vets radio catskill wjff thank you doug you have a great day aaron leonard thank you for joining us you are involved with a program called outdoor adventure and education called another summit
0: Thanks for having us, Doug.
2: Okay, so you are a veteran, so could you let us all know um, your background? and?
0: Sure thing. So I enlisted in the U.S. Army back in 1987, eventually earned a commission through OCS and retired in 2014 as an artillery officer, having served in um, Iraq in 91 and again uh, on three different tours after 9-11. And in my career... I've worked with many young soldiers in their transitions out of the military back into civilian life. And as many of us who, who work in this field or have served in the military know, after 9-11 and we, we, the increase of uh, you know, exposure to combat operations and war zones that our, our veterans were facing, we were seeing a change in the veteran community where they weren't doing very well on the outside. There was... Um, noticeable increase in suicides, there was increase in unemployment, uh, other struggles, and they would reach back and, and ask for help time to time. But when I got ready to retire, I became interested in how I could become a leader within the veteran community and found that I always had a passion for the outdoors, for hunting and hiking and, and, and fishing and whatnot, and that there, there's a career field called wilderness therapy or outdoor adventure education that I could be qualified to work in and then continue my service in the veteran community. So that's how I became connected initially. I knew nothing of the field until I was getting ready to retire and kind of researching what I wanted to do in my retirement. And um, I came across this great way to serve our veteran community, plus the benefits that I received from you know, giving back to the community. How you get people involved in this? In in the in the outdoor world, there's two primary ways that people will recreate in in nature. One is on their own, with their friends or family, or by themselves. About half of the population in our country, we know, already does that at least one time a year. A very small percentage of the veteran population, around one percent, has an opportunity to participate in programs like what we offer. So one percent around 200,000 vets in the United States. They get a chance to participate in a community-based outdoor adventure and education program that's designed to help them make that transition from being in the military into a healthy and purposeful civilian lifestyle. It's unfortunate that that number is so small, but that's where we're at today with, with the size of those program offerings around the U.S. Another summit is one of just a handful in the Hudson Valley that offers some type of structured outdoor activity that's led by trained uh, leaders or guides and uh, takes veterans in in groups with other vets through that activity that's somewhat physically challenging, perhaps, or mentally challenging and has a measurable positive outcome. The most common outcomes of participating in our community-based hiking program at another summit is a reduction in a veteran's feelings of loneliness and, a, and an increase in their sense of belonging to something that they feel important about. So that's really the the positive step. And we know one of the leading causes of suicide in the veteran population is that the veteran is lonely and they don't feel like they have a purpose. So when you create an outdoor adventure education program here, you're, you're creating something that has an opportunity to reestablish that sense of purpose by giving somebody that's as simple as a weekly hike with other vets that they can do in their own neighborhoods, not having to travel into the back country. You don't have to buy any special equipment. All you got to do is show up at the trailhead and you can participate in our program.
2: Okay. How long have you been doing this now?
0: I've been with another summit since the beginning of this year. Uh, the program itself started late 2020. and oh, Since I okay. came on board, we've, we've really started to, to pick up the pace of our program offerings so we're up to two to three hikes a week depending on the day of the week and then we have some other events and some back multi-day backpacking trips coming up this fall once the heat kind of goes down a bit
2: so is another summit then a national organization
0: no not at all doug it's it's very much uh located in putnam county and then a little bit over into Dutchess, if somebody's in Wappinger falls or um Beacon, perhaps, or even Uber, but it's designed to to do a really good job right here where where I live and where Alex lives, so right here where the organization is headquartered. We don't have any intention of, of growing another summit at this time. We want to really focus on uh, nailing how to make this work really well right here first. Are there other organizations around the us
2: uh, like this? There must be, right?
0: Oh, yes, there is, absolutely. The world of outdoor adventure education includes a a wide array of different types of programs. So some of the names you might be familiar with is uh, the Wounded Warrior Project. They run a program within their organization called Project Odyssey. That's a form of outdoor adventure education. Project Healing Waters Fly Fishing, which has chapters in New York, is another form, and they focus on um, physically disabled veterans, although any veteran can participate. Uh, teaching them how to fly fish, everything from building a fly rod, tying flies, to catching trout in New York, which is a great place to go fishing, right? There's other smaller hiking organizations, and there's multi-day trip organizations out there. Uh, Outward Bound for veterans, for example, offers a national uh, opportunity for about 600 veterans a year to participate in these world-class week-long expeditions. Every program that we partner with or that I've partnered with over the past, uh, you know, Eight years of my my career in this field has has had a mix of success depending on locality and their program models but but overall they tend to be pretty effective for those veterans who have the opportunity to participate once again the the number of, of programs like ours that are available is very small compared to the size of the population, and um, we're only as a as a field across the United States able to serve about 1% of of the entire veteran population, which is, you know, about 200,000. We hope to see that change in the near future with some legislation that's come out of the feds. Okay, and what what is that legislation? So last year, uh, President Trump signed the Accelerating Veterans Recovery Outdoors Act, which is telling the Department of Veterans Affairs to examine how to incorporate outdoor programming within the VA system And to do that, it's what's what's uh, known as a study bill. They have to wait until the pandemic is over. So the you know we're currently under a national emergency. So when that ends, within 18 months, they can form a task force, and then a year later, they can submit a report. So we're still years away, even though the bill was unanimously passed through both houses of our Congress. Um, It's still going to take another few years before it actually goes into effect. Within a few years or as soon as that report comes back from the task force, the VA will begin incorporating outdoor programming within their system. So we could see the creation of an outdoor uh, program offering through the VA that could actually support serving 5 10% of the population. So much greater numbers of veterans having that opportunity to get outside. So where do you get your
2: other leaders, where do they come from, and how do you get them involved?
0: There is a way to be certified in this country as a outdoor leader. Different organizations provide certifications. We have created a certification process for outdoor leaders at another summit. When veterans participate with us, if they have interest in becoming certified by another summit as an outdoor leader, then uh, we can, we provide that training to them. So I want to thank you for your
2: efforts and I want to thank you for your service, sir. And, um, Thank you for uh, participating in uh, Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill.
0: Thank you, Doug. Appreciate
1: being on. Thank you, Doug. You have a great day.
2: Our thanks this evening to Chuck Eastman, Executive Director of Stop Soldier Suicide, Alex Othmer, former Navy SEAL, co-founder and Executive Director of Guardian Revival, and Aaron Leonard, career Army officer and leader of the Outdoor Adventure Program at Guardian Revival. And, of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we can talk about them on the air. You can drop us an email at vets at wjffradio.org. Don't forget, Let's Talk Vets is now widely available as a podcast. Let's all take some time this Saturday to remember all of those who lost their lives in the cowardly attacks on our country September 11th, 2001. And we'll leave you tonight with a list of the 13 U.S. service members who lost their lives trying to manage the chaos at Kabul Airport August 27th, 2021. They join a long line of patriots, our allies, Afghanis, and others who dared to work with us over the past 20 years, who gave their last full measure in service to our country. Unfortunately, these are not the last casualties of this 20-year war. Their sacrifices will not be forgotten. Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Darren T. Hooper, 31 years old, Salt Lake City, Utah. Marine Corps Sergeant Johanny Rosario Picardo, 25, of Lawrence, Massachusetts. Marine Corps Sergeant Nicole L. G., 23, Sacramento, California. Marine Corps Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22, Indio, California. Marine Corps Corporal Dagan W. Page, 23, of Omaha, Nebraska. Marine Corps Corporal Umberto A. Sanchez, 22, of Logansport, Indiana. Marine Corps Lance Corporal David L. Espinosa, 20, Rio Bravo, Texas. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Jared M. Schmetz, 20, St. Charles, Missouri. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Riley J McCollum 20 of Jackson Wyoming Marine Corps Lance Corporal Dylan R Marola 20 of Rancho Cucamonga California Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kareem M DeCoy 20 of Norco California and Navy Hospitalman Maxton W. Sobiak, 22 of Berlin Heights, Ohio; Army Staff Sergeant Ryan C. Kennas, 23 of Coryton, Tennessee.
3: Thank you for all the ways you help WJFF Radio Catskill. Your support sustains the news, music, and local voices that make up WJFF. It's only possible because of your generosity. Help keep it going. Consider signing up to be a sound supporter to make sure Radio Catskill has your constant support. Go to wjffradio.org. And thank you for supporting public radio in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
0: You're listening to Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. I'm Scott Simon. If you've raised children, you know the best way to address fear is with truthful information, calmly and comfortingly delivered. That's what NPR News always tries to do in times of crisis, too. That old car in your driveway can actually help us. By donating it to this station, you'll turn your car more solid information brought to you by voices you trust here's how donate at wjffradio.org you're listening to radio catskill public radio for the catskills and northeast pennsylvania wjff jeffersonville
2: on air online on your smartphone just download the wjff app